running in the last uh, second part here of chapter 2. Last week, we had a wonderful opportunity of just laying out the framework for what we're looking at. When you do your basic overviews, which is what we did last week uh, for chapter 2, it's, it is so helpful because in doing those really tedious uh, processes of finding your keywords and marking them and making your list and then trying to see how it fits into the bigger picture. I think this is um, sometimes, although it's tedious, it's also so rewarding because the reward comes as it did for us this week. Because now this week, when we dove in to do the inductive, the more tedious inductive work, looking at, at word studies and looking at cross-referencing to build upon the the the, um, the foundation, basically, that we laid last week. Now what we do is we enhance our learning by digging in a little bit deeper. And I, that's the part that gets really fun and exciting, I think. So last week, when we looked at chapter two, what did you see was the major theme? What was going on in chapter two? How do, and how, did it relate, how does it relate to the overall theme? What is the major theme for Philippians? Maybe I should make it an easier question. Okay, it's, it's joy, rejoicing. Can you expound on that? We know that the, the, the major theme word, the major word is rejoice. But tell me the theme for the book. What is Paul saying he wants them to do? That's exactly right. Thank you for good expansion. Rejoice in the Lord Always. Now, the word always, I think, is a real profound part of that title. Why? Why is the word? Okay, because in the case of Paul, he was in the midst of suffering. He was in prison. He was, um, uh, even his life was possibly in danger. He didn't know for sure would he, would he live or would he die. And yet, in the midst of what was going on, he seemed to have grasped a, um, an insight or a knowledge or a principle for that he has made an application in his life that is profound for being able to have this kind of attitude of rejoicing. So in chapter 1, what was the major thing that keeps a person with that kind of an, an attitude or a mindset of rejoicing always, regardless of what's going on in your life? That's right, living for Christ. So it's if your focus is Jesus, if your eyes are set upon God, upon Christ himself, then you're going to be able to rejoice in it. And I love the fact that in Paul's case, and I got to say I really relate to Paul in, that, in this particular point, and that is the, the major key word in that chapter 1 had to do with the gospel, right? So for him, he said concerning living for Christ, he didn't care what was going on around him. But what was the most important thing to him? Christ was being proclaimed. He didn't care if it was in pretense or whether it was uh, actually a, as a, as a uh, positive thing. He didn't, he didn't care how it was being presented. He was just happy that it was being presented. And for him, it's all about the Word of God. And I, for me, that's really been my mantra or my motto sort of in my life and that is you know the Lord told me at one time in my life you tell them that my word is everything you tell them that my word is the only thing that matters and this is what God's word was through me or in me to anyone who asks that, that it's the most important thing and this is where Paul was 
it's it's the it's the only thing that really matters because he's living for Christ. His focus was on Christ. So now in chapter two, now am I going to repeat my question? Now we're in chapter two. What did you see was the major event going on in chapter two? Basically, that's the that's it, it in a nutshell. Is the idea of having your focus upon other people, not upon yourself. Now, what we did when we looked at that I, that living for others. Uh, major theme is then we went through each paragraph and kind of broke it down to see how it broke down. Now, someone was asking me last week, you know, how do you get these uh, chapter themes? How do you develop them? Because sometimes it's really easy. For instance, you can see that when you hit, um, let me hold on a second. Let me open this up again here in chapter two. We see that one through four showed us that we are to regard others as more important. And then five to 11, the major personage that's spoken of in five to 11 is who? Christ, right? So you can see that that's a major thing, Christ. So it's be, it would be really easy to just kind of focus upon Christ without going beyond that thought. And the same thing was true when you hit um, nine to 24, where, where it was about who? Who do you see in nine to 24? Who's the major person in 9 to 24? 19 to 24. Timothy. So then we see Timothy is, is that, is, becomes a major subject in that particular one. And then when you hit 25 to 30, it's who? Epaphrodites, right? Yeah, yeah, that one. <laughs> that one we can't pronounce. Okay, so somebody was asking me, they're saying, well, you know, I went through and I made these things, but all I could really see is that they were an example. And so they kind of said, well, Timothy's an example, and Epaphroditus is an example, for instance. And certainly Christ was the major ex example. And so they kind of titled their titles there. And I said, yes, but what you really have to ask yourself is, is a little bit deeper questions say okay now that you've identified the major person now ask the next question and say concerning that person's um life what what paul explained to you about them what was the quality in their life that was the was a demonstration of how you can live for others so if your major theme is live for others you need to say well about timothy's life what was he doing that Paul was touting? What was Paul being bragging about on him, saying he was doing this really well? What was Timothy doing that... That's it. He had a concern about having genuine concern for others, right? So when I titled my paragraph there, rather than just saying, follow Timothy's example, which is a true statement, but it's not quite as declarative. If you really want to get to to nuts and bolts about what it is that you're going to do because what you want to be able to do is look back at your outline and say how how can I apply this to me and if all I say to myself is follow Timothy's example now I've got to stop and reread that whole section and evaluate it again and and it, right now that might be easy thing to do but give it two years or three years or four years and then go back in there and you're going to say now what was going on there and you've kind of lost the whole context you're going to forget so it's much better if right now you evaluate a little bit deeper the question as to how does what is said about Timothy relate to the major theme, which is living for others. How is he living for others? That's the question. 
So that's what I like to do when I'm going through and trying to title these things. Everything has to relate back to the thing that is above it. So when you're titling chapters, you want your, your, your chapter titles to help explain or enhance your understanding about the major theme. So the major theme is rejoice in the Lord always, right? How are you going to rejoice in the Lord always? In chapter 1, you're going to do it by living for Christ, keeping Christ as the number one on your agenda. Your major focus is, is all about Jesus. That's what's the most important thing. And in, in the Paul's example of that was he didn't care whether it was pretense or, or in, um, what was the other word, pretense or, um, pardon? Or truth, that's it. That's exactly right. Either in pretense or in truth, it was that Christ was being uh, confessed or proclaimed, right? So in that flow of thought, you just keep relating back to the, made, the theme of the chapter or the, the, the theme of the book, and you let your chapter answer, and then you let your paragraphs answer your chapter title. So in chapter 2, we see this is our flow of thought. We are to, in the first four verses, seek for, the, seek for the interests of others, right? Basically live for others. Um, and in 1 to 4, we are, re, we are to regard others more important. In 5 to 11, we're to have Christ's attitude. In 12 to 16, we're to prove ourselves children of God. In 17 and 18, we're to share in Paul's joy of sacrificial living because he uses himself as a little example in there, talks about himself being poured out as a drink offering, right? And so what we learned this week about the drink offering was that, in essence, it's what? What is the drink offering pictorial for? What is the imagery in it? It is to be, it's a sacrifice. And when... When that sacrifice was made, can you explain to me a little bit more about that sacrifice? What did you learn this week in that? What, what kind of a sacrifice was it, and when was it given, and why was it given? Okay. Okay, those were the opportunities for it to be given. You didn't have to do it twice a day, obviously, and every day, but it, the opportunities was evening and morning, and what kind of sacrifice was this? There you go. It's very important for you to understand this is a voluntary sacrifice. Now, how does that relate to what we are studying in this uh, book? Okay. It, what, the subject matter that we're having in this particular book, then, is not about what is mandatory to have a relationship with Christ, but it's rather what is our, our uh, uh, voluntary service under Christ. When the book opens, Paul introduces himself as what? A bondservant. And when we hit this chapter 2 and we looked at Christ, even Christ himself demonstrated that what was he? He was also, he came to be a bondservant, right? So in both of those, you see the idea of voluntary service, not mandatory, correct? So if you're going to break that down into your two um, major uh, uh, verb tenses or, uh, or, or categories, basically, of salvation, the one that's mandatory is called what? justification it results in justification that which is voluntary is speaking of 
sanctification. Now, we also have glorification, which we're not really talking about, although we do see it uh, brought up in here, do we not, in the book? Because what is, what is the references to glorification in this book? Yes. And we are waiting for what day? For the day of Jesus Christ. So everything that we're doing in this voluntary uh, place is to have an effect at the day when Christ returns, right? So it's talking about sanctification in this, in this thing. So the drink offering being a voluntary offering, I think that's really profound and really significant. He didn't talk about the atonement. He didn't talk about the, the, the burnt offering of the sacrifice. He didn't talk about the, the Lamb of God taketh away the sins of the world, right? He didn't talk about that lamb, which is uh, the propitiation lamb. He spoke about the drink offering, and the drink offering was a mandatory. And I really love the way it was described. When you did your work on that, what did you see was God's response to that voluntary offering? There you go. That it was a pleasing aroma unto God. That this was pleasing to the Lord. And it was a sweet fragrance and a, a pleasing thing to the Lord. I thought that was really cool. So visually, just visually, if you think about that, you and I's life, after the, the, sac the sacrifice which brings us into salvation is a, an accomplished thing. And what we're talking about here in this book now is those things which we do voluntarily of our own free will volition. These are offerings that we are giving unto God. And Paul is demonstrating that his life is like a drink offering being poured out. That is a pretty pictorial thing, isn't it? The imagery of that is beautiful. And, and knowing what the... Uh, drink offering is that it's a voluntary thing um, and the fact that it speaks of it as being morning and night also kind of you can take it to the next level number one the obvious thing is is they didn't do it every morning and every night not everyone did that each of them had an opportunity to do that but the implication there is that how often is it to be done in in our lives morning and night and it is a habitual, ongoing thing, morning and night, from morning to evening, from morning to evening. We are to be pouring out our lives as a free will offering or free will service unto the Lord. And how are we to do that, according to what Paul says? Without grumbling, Without grumbling and complaining. Right? There's to be a joyfulness in, in the doing of it. Even in the midst of cir circumstances that if your perspective is your eyes are on Jesus, you understand your whole life is, is to be given in, in sacrifice and service unto him, not for your salvation, but because of your salvation. And so th that was uh, showed to us then through, through Paul's sacrificial living. Then in nine, 19 to 24, then we see Timothy's example of how he did that by having genuine concern for others. And then in 25 to 30, we saw um, Epaphroditus being willing then to do what? What did he willingly do for? That's right. He had literally risked his life in service for others. I love that. I love the fact that that in this message, what Paul does is he takes something that could have a, high, a very high 
uh, almost unattainable kind of an image for us when you think of what Christ did. That's, that's beyond our reach almost in many ways. And yet the attitude of it is what he says he wants in us. Not the literalness of it, but the attitude of it. And then he goes down and he shows an, an, an explanation in two, the lives of two very common men who are doing common things on a daily basis and how it is that they exhibited these, this same kind of example of sacrificial living. So that last week set the tone for our understanding of basically the flow of thought here and where we're heading. I wanted you to also have one more time in your mind just an understanding of how you're to connect your major theme to your title and then your paragraphs to each of your chapter themes. They want, they, each time you, you title something, it should answer or address the title of your chapter. You should say, okay, if I'm living to Christ, how am I living to Christ? And look at those paragraph uh, titles. When you come to the next one, how am I living for others? How am I to live for others? And your paragraph titles should actually address that and give you some real concise points as to how to do that. Okay, so that's review. Let me slip this back in here so I don't confuse it with what I'm teaching here. Okay, now what we want to do is... Um, I started us off by just a, also a review of some of the things that, that we connected last week. We started last week by looking at the beginning of chapter 2, and we talked about that very first word. What is the very first word in chapter 2? Therefore. So if there's a therefore, what does that tell you about what's being said right in that, in that section that follows? That's right. There is something there that had preceded it. You have to connect it back. You have to go back to see, oh, well, if there's a therefore, what was before it that the therefore is therefore, right? So when we did that, we were able to connect all the way back in chapter 1. What was the beginning of the thought in chapter 1? What verse was it? That's right. Exactly. 127. And then... He begins in verse 27 after he has laid out in chapter 1 a great um, illustration of how he himself was putting Christ at the, as the center or the heart, basically, of his life, that he was living for Christ. Then he begins in 27, and quite honestly, 27 could probably actually be the beginning of the new paragraph, but they didn't do it that way. However, we want to back up because that's the beginning of the thought. Since chapter 2 starts with a therefore, we're going to go back to 27, and this is where we begin to see him giving them some actual uh, commands. Now, how do these commands relate to what he goes into then in chapter 2 with your major theme? Your major theme is serving others, right? So what do you see in the things that are written here? We see in, in 127, he says, have conduct worthy of the gospel, right? Uh, in also, he says in there, stand firm for the faith. And he gives a rendition of, of additional ways of doing that. And in 128, he says, do not be alarmed by your opponents. And then he goes into chapter 2 after the therefore and continues with that thought. So what do these, these commands up here have to do with the major theme of living for others? Okay. All right. I mean, not just the world, but 
Right, exactly. Okay, so, but when, when you look at commands, when a person says, do this, do this, do this, do this, why is he saying do this? What is he trying to accomplish again in chapter 2? What does he want them to do in chapter 2? Living for others, right? And the way that they're going to be able to live for others is, is through, and then he gives them actually some specifics on how to do that. He doesn't just leave them high and dry, says, oh, we'll just live for others, and just not explaining it, right? He actually gets very practical in this book, and he, gives, he lays out some very specific things that, he's, that he wants them to understand. Living for others is about this. And so in, he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, what, do you, what does that mean to you? What does it mean to, be, to live in a, a conduct that's worthy of the gospel? Okay, godliness. Because what would not be conduct that's worthy? How would that be a, con a conflict? Okay. It would, be a tr it would actually be a contradiction, wouldn't it be? I mean, if people, if you are making a claim to be a Christian, but you're living contrary to the gospel message of a holy life, of living holy, of God's holiness being, quote, in you now. And if his holiness is truly within you, if he himself is abiding within you, and he has become your Lord and Master through salvation, then if you are actually living outside of those principles of who Christ says he is, is there, is there going to become a problem for a person who says that they belong to Christ, and yet their, their conduct is not living up to that which they are speaking. Yeah, there used to be a really big thing there, let your walk talk louder than your talk talks, you know. You are to walk in a manner that is worthy, and I think it really actually came right out of this particular verse. Okay, so he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, and so that was the first uh, instruction he gives him in the practical application of how are you going to live for others. Well, first of all, first and foremost, you need to have conduct that's worthy. Now, how do you get to conduct? How, what, what builds up for you the ability to have the right kind of conduct? Well, it's kind of like he's saying, first and foremost, live, when you're living for others, live for Christ. Yes. And then, and then the living for other people kind of flows from that. Isn't that an amazing thing, how he put it in the, this correct order? Uh, gee, that's just amazing that God would do it that way. Thank you, God, for getting it correct. <laughs> Right, but it's so true because, in other words, you you can't put you have to you can't have the cart before the horse. You have to get the horse up front. The one the driving power behind the 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 success of this living for Christ is that, or living and rejoicing always is that first and foremost it's all about Christ. And if it's all about Christ, then your conduct will follow suit. If it's not all about Christ. If it's all about something else, what could be some other things that motivate people to come into a church, join up with a church, and kind of participate, but not really having committed their life? Yeah. 
Oh, funny. That's possibly true. Yeah. And I can't help but wonder because it's taking so many days. But the time is when persecutors and cells, there's high, high responsibility to be a Christian. Um, why would someone do that if it's not only in their heart? So maybe it's idolatrism, maybe it's um, opposition. You know what? I, I actually thought about this in regard to. I, I'm thinking of a certain person in my mind that I know who had made a claim to having come to Christ, and yet as time went by, it, it, it proved out that no, they had not come to Christ at all. But my question in my mind was, why did that person actually gravitate into that Christian environment to begin with if they weren't really being drawn by the power of God and, and by real heart commitment to God, to a belief in God, a, a, um, a, per, a persuasion that, that God is needed in their life, right? And if, they, if that's not what's drawing them, what would draw them? And he, this is what I got to thinking about. Along the, li- the lines of what you just said, what if you're in a world and an environment where it's hostile all the time? And you just need a place where you can feel safe, you can feel loved, you can feel like you could take a deep breath and just kind of relax a little bit. Rather than maybe maybe it's because your maybe your upbringing was the environment of the church, um, you've now walked away from it because you haven't made a commitment to God. But having walked away, now you're now you're just looking for that light again because you just feel like you need to be bathed again in some sense of rightness and sensibility and peace instead of all the strife and the bickering and the fighting and the backstabbing and the and also just the evil mindset and, and behavior and language. And I think that sometimes people run to the church for other reasons than just because they have a heart that says, I believe God, I believe who he says he is, and I'm going to bow my knee to him. And people who don't want to bow a knee to God, sometimes they come for other reasons. And so, yes. Absolutely. And isn't that what we're supposed to, that's exactly what he said, I think it was in, chap, in chapter 2, verse 12, where he says about being, or 15, where we're to be this light, right? The light is supposed to attract people to it. And so that's what we want to do, and that is what we're, we are striving to do. But what I'm saying is, for you and I to evaluate ourselves, our own heart, our own lives, is we need to say, number one, did we start in chapter 1? Did we start with understanding that it's all about Jesus and that's where our real heart is supposed to be? Um, One of the uh, things I listened to this week was talking about a passage in uh, Revelation where it's talking to the churches and and it's calling them to repentance. And it is a corporate call. It isn't talking about coming into salvation, actually. It's actually a a calling to say, come... um, Correct the errors of your way as a church, as a, as a, as a, what is the right word? Congregation. Congregation. I guess that's the best way. As a congregation. And 
uh, allow me to be the focus in your lives again. Allow me to be your first love. Allow me to enter in and to be a part of it. Let me be your focus, right? And if we don't let Christ be the focus back in chapter one, which is Paul, what Paul says, you're not going to be able to move into two where he's drawing you and he's saying to you, I want you to have a conduct that's in a manner worthy of, of your calling. The calling you have is a calling to put Christ first. That's the first and foremost thing. And the calling of Christ is also a life of holiness. If you have put Christ first, you have bowed your knee. And if you have bowed your knee, then you are willing to try to make the adjustments in your life to live more godly, to be more Christ-like, to be more holy in your, in your attitudes and your behaviors. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a, prog it's a progressive thing. It takes time. Um, sometimes we have strongholds that we have to overcome, things that, that we hang on to. But on the whole, what Paul does is he makes this transition from, okay, if in fact you have Christ as your focus, now I want you to prove it through your conduct. So now we're into sanctification. We're looking at the sanctification work. Have conduct that's worthy of the gospel and stand. Then he goes on and he says, stand firm for the faith, right? And the way that he qualifies standing firm for the faith, did someone look at that verse 27 with me again? He elaborates on how you're going to stand firm for the faith. By doing what? There you go. Do you see all this oneness? One spirit, one mind for the faith of the gospel. Now, tell me this. If this was a personal call, why would he say one, one, one? You are one. So what does that tell you he's actually calling for? Unity within the body. Yes. Exactly. It is a corporate call. So this is really cool because at this point where he's saying live for others and he's saying corporately live for others. And the way you're going to be able to do that corporately is to have one heart, one mind, one spirit, basically one agenda, right? One, one purpose. And he's going to, he's going to draw you into an, an, an a concept of community, of fellowship, and like First John, you know, having this fellowship with one another. All right, so connect your, yourself in a manner worthy and, and stand firm for the gospel by being one spirit and one mind and striving together. Now, interesting, striving together. Now, have we seen any hints in the book on the whole about opposition within the body not, we're not talking about the external things. We know the, about Rome. We've talked about that. We've talked about the Jews who hate them and are, are coming against them. But what about internally? Are there any, is there anything inside this book that we see there's some internal strife? Okay. Okay, so, the, so that's back in chapter 1, and, and that indicates that within the body of Christ, those who are preaching it, that there's actually some who may be out of jealousy, and not why, I don't know, but there's a jealousy thing going on. But he... So 
There you go. Then there's also those two ladies. There's the women who are ha seeming to have some kind of struggle, right? And so he's calling for them to come together to, ha to be unified, correct? All right. He says, um, all right, well, let's move on then. Let's, okay, so now what we've done is we've laid down our groundwork for understanding what, what, we're, what we're in the middle of. I hate just jumping into trying to ex, uh, expound on things if you haven't really kind of reviewed where you're at. Now that we have the big review, we know the major flow, we know what Paul is addressing in chapter 2. He's now focused upon within the, the community of the congregation. He's asking you to live for others. And now he's going to go into these specifics of how and why and where. Now, last week we did do uh, already some of this work on Christ. We, we looked at it. I know Kay covered it in the video. So this is kind of just be a little bit of a review. But I want to review this for the purpose of hitting the do one of the doctrinal points that's in here that I think is super, super important. Um, it's almost like I'm adding a little additional teaching in here, but I, I think it's important because I heard it taught in error on occasion, even within the body of Christ. And so I just want to clarify something I think is important. So now what do we see in verses 6 and 7 about Christ? We're talking about having the, the attitude of Christ, right? Um, tell me what we know is true about Christ in 6 and 7. Who, who was he and what did he do? Pardon? Okay, basically he is God. He existed. Now this is important the way that the phraseology in this. It says he existed in the what? The form of God. Now this is important. He existed in the, and I'm going to put a, uh, italics around this word form and underline it for you so you can understand it's the form of God that is being emphasized in the, he is God correct but he in this point that he's making is he existed in the form of God and then yet what did he do what did he take on he took on the the likeness of man and that's in uh, verse 7 also, right? This was 6, I think. 6 and then 7. Okay, so, and he took on the likeness of, of man. And, so, and then when we see that expounded, what, what, what did he become? Okay, he took the form of a bondservant. Again, does it say that word form in there? Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. So it's very important. He took the form of a bondservant. That's in number uh, seven also. Likeness of man, the form of a bondservant. Yes, ma'am? Oh, yeah. Good. Right. To seize by force? To But it's all. But but then, did you go on to look to see exactly what was being said there? When it, when it's not something to be grasped, meaning held on to. But it was, what was interesting to me is it was all for. 
Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then, the, and if you kind of you're here, you kind of have to hash out exactly what's being said there. Then, if the if the idea or the the feeling behind it is forcibly grasping or holding on to the form of God, His God form, right? Then. Yes. I mean, and it, it, yes. So his equality with God is like, I'm not going to just hang on to that. I'm going to give it up so I can become. There you go. There you go. So this is the point I'm trying to bring out because this particular passage, some people say that basically he gave up his deity. He relinquished being God to become man. Now, why would that be a problem? Yes, because for, for a man to die and shed blood and be the propitiation, which is sinless, without fault, without blemish, could a human being do that? Could any man do that? When you study um, the book of um, Hebrews, it talks about the animal sacrifices as well. Even an animal uh, could not substitute, correct? For the correct blood. The only blood that would be acceptable would be that of of a sinless man. So who could possibly be a sinless man? Only God if he took on the form, the flesh of man, but yet retained his deity, right? Thank you. Very good. All right, read that one for us. Have you got that handy? Uh, Matthew one twenty three. if you need it. Yeah, Matthew. <laughs> I looked it up. <laughs> Just so happens. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God with us. So if you know, in fact, that when Jesus took on the form of man, he was still God. He was God with us. He never ceased to be God. By the way, this is why when he spoke, things responded. This is why when he, when he healed, men would be raised, even raised from the dead like Lazarus. He could still the waters. He could, um, uh, he, he could read the minds and the hearts of people like the woman at the well. He knew what was in her heart. He knew her whole life. Why? Because he's God with us. He, his deity was retained, although he took on the form or the flesh. So what was it that he gave up when it says that he emptied himself? When it says he emptied himself, what does that mean he emptied himself of? His deity form, his glory. That's exactly what he gave up. Yes. That's exactly right. He simply, t and that was going to be my next point. Christ never emptied himself of his deity. Just, just know that when he emptied himself, it simply means that he, uh, he allowed himself to take on a new form temporarily. Yes. 
Yes, it's God incarnate. That's exactly right. So when, when he never ceased to be God, the doctrine is this, that he's Emmanuel, he is God with us. And there are so many scriptures that show that. Do you remember in his, in his earthly ministry, when you look through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in particular, there's lots of references in there where Jesus speaks to the people around him, and he says, you must believe that I am now, when he claimed the I am statement, he meant what? I am, meaning Yahweh. And what was the response of the, particularly the Jewish leaders when he would say, I am? They picked up stones to stone him or they chased him, you know, through the, through the city and out. They were going to execute him because he was claiming to be God. So Christ claimed to be God. Now, is Christ a truth speaker? Exactly. So if, he's, if he is telling truth and we are placing our faith on him for salvation, he says of himself, I am. So when he, And he said that of himself while he was in his human form, his human flesh. So he, the scriptures tell us in Matthew 1.23, he is God with us. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. He says... He says to himself, I am, and you see that in John 8, 58. That's just one of many, many verses. He actually says there, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. <laughs> that takes you all the way back, right? I mean, that is an impossibility if he's not God. Because the human fleshly Jesus could not have been before a Abraham, except that the deity of God dwelt within him. And therefore, he was before Abraham, right? Actually, there's another verse that says even before the foundation of the world. In the story of the burning bush, um, it, they say it was the angel of the Lord. It, you know, spoke out of the burning bush. Then it said God spoke out of the burning bush. Yes. The angel of the Lord referred to Jesus, actually, in the Old Testament. That's exactly right. That's another example. I am, exactly. So this is really, that's a good point too, uh, and I hadn't pulled that one up. That's exactly correct. So what I am trying to emphasize at this, at this moment here is just a small little doctrinal truth that I want to make sure all of you are made aware of because I have heard it. I've been in Bible studies before where I hear people say, well, he, he gave up his deity. No, he did not. He gave up his deity form. He, he gave that up temporarily to take on the flesh of man. So he was fully God and fully man, both. And when he went to that cross, it was God that died upon the cross for us. And this is an important doctrine of truth for you to know and to hold on to and to be aware of. And this is a perfect time to teach it because this is it. I mean, this is, here's the teaching of it right here, I think. That he, he relinquished the form of glory, not his deity. That's all. Okay, so he emptied himself of his glory form, or the form of his glory, his deity form. That's all. He existed in the form of God. He took on the, the likeness of, meaning the form of. He took the form of a bondservant. He emptied himself of his glory form or of his deity form, and it was a temporary thing. And then it says of him, in Christ's attitude, he did all this, and this is what's amazing. He was God. Think of what he, what he did. Think about, just for a second, we'll ponder here a little tiny bit. When God took human form, 
He began in the womb that he created. He went into the womb of a woman whose womb he created. That's that's a that's a profound thought to me. Being a woman and having bore children, I just think of the the idea. Can you imagine Mary? How when it says she pondered these things in her her heart, I'm going, yeah. <laughs> I would be like, whoa, God is growing in my in my womb. Um, he sacrificially gave up his rightful place of glory and his rightful body of glory. Both his position in the heavens and his physical form, he gave those up. That was the sacrifice of what he did for us when he took on the form of a bondservant. We can kind of brush through these things really quickly and just kind of ratchet out the points that we learned. But when you really stop to think on this, the extent of what it was that he did on our behalf, the sacrifice in that. Have you ever heard of stories of people who have had death experiences and they've, they've been in heaven even for just a few minutes? And what is it that, that they all say when they come back to this earth? Did they want to come back? Can you imagine God leaving the, the glories of heaven and the presence of the triune God in, in harmony and the beauty and the peace and the purity of that place and coming here to dwell with man? What does that tell you about the heart of God? It is, it's a love that we can't really even begin to comprehend. Would you and I do this? I can't tell you how many of these these testimonies of people who've got, died and been in heaven or they've had this this heaven experience. They have said there was no way they wanted to come back. They're like, no, 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 no. Let me stay. Right? They do not want to come back to this. So God giving up that glory, that that place, and coming here into this depraved world, where how was he treated when he was here? Uh, not very well at all. <laughs> I think about it. He was without, without honor, where in the heavenlies he was honored. Without, and not only just honor, but respect. He, didn't, he wasn't even respected as a person. He, oh, he's just Mary's son, or he's just Joseph's son. He, he, you know, when he would go to preach in the synagogues, well, isn't that just Mary's son? I mean, they didn't even want to listen to him. No respect for him whatsoever. Um, rejected totally. His, he came as a love offering, as a sacrifice for us, and, we, and on the whole, humanity simply rejected him. They scorned him. They, they despised him. And then, of course, the cross. I just think of all of these things. This is the, the attitude. Of, now, now, think of that. That's the attitude that he is calling us to have, this attitude of sacrifice, of being willing to set aside what glory you might have, what honor you might have, what respect you might have, what, what, what place of comfort or place of dignity or place of peace that you might have. Just being willing. And it, it doesn't mean that God calls you every single day to, to do without those things. But he's saying being willing to give some of those up on occasion so that you can serve me. And do so in a way that has the, the attitude that Christ had when he came to serve you and I as a bondservant. This is the attitude he wants for us. 
He was obedient to the cross. Do we see Paul in any way affiliating this or, or representing this? Yes, no. Uh-huh. I, well, you know, the fact that Jesus came and he was willing to even die if he needed to. And obviously he needed to, right? That's the whole point that he came was to die for us. So he came knowing he would die. But, but here what we really, he's saying have the attitude that you're willing to. He's not saying that you have to or that you will, but have the attitude that you would be willing to if, you were, if it were called upon you. Um, it's pretty, I think it's, it's pretty easy as a mom or a dad to be able to say, you know, I would die for my children. You know, I would be, you know, if, if there was an oncoming truck and I had to sacri- if I had to sacrifice my life to push my child into safety, I would do that. I can, you know, I remember I was just thinking with, when Vanessa was a baby and we were in Turkey and we were, had come across the, the highway from the bus and I was pulling the pull cart full of uh, laundry and um, that, that was how we did everything, by we carried it to the military base, did the laundry, went back out to our, our houses on the economy. And as we were coming across, she stumbled and had fallen in the middle of the, of the uh, street, basically. It just was kind of near to the curb, but not quite at the curb. She was out in the, in the road. And I reached down to her, and I thought, you know, I was probably going to get killed, right? I didn't even for a second consider it. But, but later I thought, I could have died, <laughs> you know? But I remember reaching down, and I don't know where the strength came from, but I grabbed her, her little wrist, and I flung her over my head like this, and she landed on the concrete. Of course, then she's crying, and she's going, what'd you do that for, Mommy? Right? She was not happy with me. But about that time, then the taxi comes whizzing by. I mean, it was just seconds. The taxi was going to run right over her. And I think, you know, it's easy for us to, have, to be willing. Good morning. Come on in. Uh, I'm so sorry. Please come in and have a chair. There's, there's seats here. There's a whole table right here just for you. It's got your name on it. And there's coffee and, and refreshments back there. Help yourself. Uh, do we have child care anymore? No, we don't. I'm so sorry. We used to <laughs> years ago. <laughs> that would be fine. All right, so um, my point was, I think that, that we can get in our mind to a place where we can understand that there are people on this earth that we would be willing to sacrifice our lives for. But what Christ is saying, go to that next, to that next place with me. Be sacrificial on the level of Christ. Be willing to, to sacrifice your life for anyone, even for the least of these. I think about James where it talks about um, when you, um, you know, uh, don't set people higher than another or, or consider them uh, more uh, favored because they're rich or because they, you know, can influence your life in some way. But, but re- uh, basically put yourself below them in order to exalt them, right? Live your life in a way that even for the poor and the low, lowly that you would be willing to sacrifice in some manner. Maybe it means you have to get out of bed early one morning. 
or several mornings. Or maybe it means um, serving in a, a capacity that's not really your comfort zone. You know, serving. I remember how, when I used to do, and I, I, I was thinking about Bob because Bob does prison ministry, right? I cannot go into the prisons and do that. I have done it, and I did it when God called me to do it, but te I'm terrified. I get in there, and I'm absolutely terrified. <laughs> I'm almost frozen, right? Because I'm, I'm in a very uncomfortable thing, but I go. Why? Because God called me to go. So you do it sacrificially anyway. Sometimes, fortunately for me, God didn't call me to do that a lot. But that's kind of the example of when he says, have the attitude of willingness. That's all Christ is looking for, right? The attitude of willingness. Jesus, however, he was obedient to the point on the cross. And Paul, in chapter 1, said what about his circumstance? Concerning his imprisonment, whether I live or whether I die, he, did it for, he had that same attitude that he was willing uh, to go to the point of death, even death on, he, in this case, with Jesus, it was death on a cross. Okay, so that's in chapter 2, verse 8. And now what we want to do is move into some of these one, so that, d does that kind of clarify for you? Did anybody have any questions about that in this group? I don't know that any that we have ever really talked about this particular passage about Jesus emptying himself. Apparently, it's a there's a pretty big controversy over it. But I feel like if you break it down, it becomes very simple to see that it's speaking of the form that was given up that that he emptied himself of, not his deity. His deity was always retained. All right, now let's move on to the homework that you did concerning obedience. Now, he speaks about um, doing all things without grumbling or dispute. That was one of the things that you looked at this week in your homework. So let's take a look at that first. What it, how did you define the difference between grumbling and disputing? So let's do, let me find my, here. Let's do grumbling first. Grumbling is number 1112, and how is, how is grumbling defined? Thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Who said it? Okay. Murmuring or muttering, okay. Murmur, M-U-R. M-U-R, murmur, and what else? Complaining. Okay. Okay. Displeasure or, or with complaint. All right, and then that was grumbling, and then disputing, and we're going to look at, we want to talk about the difference between the two, though, a little bit. Disputing is number 1261, and what did it mean to dispute? Say it out loud, I couldn't hear you, honey. 
Okay, reasoning to take inventory, debate. which was kind of debate. There you go. There you go. Now we got it. Arguing. Don't argue with me. <laughs> None of you. It is official. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Okay, so arguing. So if you had to uh, split the hairs between grumbling and disputing then, when you looked at the word of grumbling, it did say about murmuring and basically it was an expression of displeasure with, co with complaint or by complaint, right? But how was it done? There you go. It's more secretly or not openly. It says displeasure. It's not openly avowed. In other words, secret. It was a secretive or, or a kind of behind, behind the back, basically, is kind of how I saw it. It's this, so that when you look at the word grumbling, it's more like I'm going to talk about you behind your back and grumble about what you've, you're saying, about the decisions you've made, about how you do something, about what, what you meant by what you said. That kind of grumbling, it's more secretive. I, but it's not me going to your face and saying, I disagree with you on that. But when you come to disputing, that's where I would come to your face and say, I disagree with you on that. Now, what I want to make sure we understand is God is not saying that there's never a time or a place for us to have these kind of challenging conversations. But in the context of what we're talking about, he's speaking about how we basically work together in the body of Christ, how we are to operate within the body of Christ. We are to have a oneness of mind and attitude, an attitude which has to do with sacrificial living for one another, and then, and then in that, do not grumble and do not dispute amongst yourselves, right? All right, now, we looked at some cross-references on that. We looked at Jude. What did you see in Jude on that? I think that's uh, day two, maybe? Okay, page 16, you said? All right, so what does Jude tell us? Okay, find, okay, these are people who, who find fault. Okay, to speak. Just the word arrogant to me tells me something, right? When, when, when the attitude is supposed to be that of a bondservant, the one who has basically submitted to... Uh, to another for their sake, for their benefit. When we did a word study on the word bondservant, I don't think I replaced it. Do you guys remember what the bondservant was, though? A voluntary slave. A voluntary slave. So I'm going to put on here a bondservant. I'm going to put over here a bondservant. I know I have it in my notes if I had time. So it's a voluntary slave. It's a free will act, right? It's an act of submission. Okay. Under the authority of another, putting yourself under the authority of another. So that's the idea of the bond servant, but 
in this case, he's saying here, this, in Jude, he's speaking about the one who is a grumbler or a disputer, that he speaks arrogantly. So arrogantly, to me, is almost a contrast to the idea of the bondservant. The bondservant is the submissive one, the one who willingly submits under that authority. And this one is the person who is arrogantly speaking against you. Um, I liked verse 13 in that Jude. Did you see what it said there? Do you have that? Do you have a whole list on what you learn in Jude? It says following after their own lusts. Now, the contrast with what we're looking at in in uh, Philippians is that we're not supposed to look after our own interests, but the interests of others. So here, if you're following after their own lusts, meaning their own interests, right? Then again, it's a, it's the contrast to it. Okay, it talks about them being, causing divisions, being worldly minded, being devoid of the spirit, correct? All right, so that's in Jude. Now move on to Numbers. Now this is very interesting because now what we're going to look at here is an example of those who also grumble and dispute, but we're going to see what God's response is to this or how he views it. We looked in Numbers 13. Starting in verse 16, going through chapter 14, verse 38, the whole, basically all of chapter 14. So it was quite a bit of reading for you to go through. But as you went through that, you were to kind of pull out the points that you were looking at to, to see how did God view grumbling in that? What, and what did he actually call it? He identified it with some real specific terms. Say it. Okay, to spurning God. So it's an act of spurning God. An act of spurning. I didn't get to look that up. What is spurning? Did you look it up by chance? Me either. Okay. And Does anybody know what spurning means? Do you have a handy uh, definition somewhere by chance? I didn't have time to look that particular one up, but I thought it was really good. An act of spurning God. Okay. What else did you see in, in Numbers? Okay, open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 13. <laughs> We're going to do this together so that you can... This is such a good one, you guys, and if you kind of hurried through this, I understand the temptation of wanting to do that um, because it was such a simple lesson. Sometimes when you have simple lessons given to you, you tend to just skirt right on through things, and I, I really don't want you to miss out on this. So in Acts, go to chapter uh, Numbers 14, look in verse 11 where she said it's an act of spurning God. And then it goes on to say what that actually is a symptom of. What, what is it saying that you, is going on in your heart or your thinking? Read 14:11, somebody. There you go. Go on. Okay. Hold on. Who has it? 1411. Okay, so to spurn is to treat with contempt. Now we know. Okay. Okay. So an act of spurning God or showing contempt, right, is meaning it's not believing in God. Wow. 
whoo, that's kind of a scary, uh, that's kind of a scary thought if you look at the way God looks at disputing or grumbling that it's actually, if you're grumbling against your church, if you're grumbling against your, the body of Christ on the whole, and you're doing so in a manner where you're finding fault, you're, you're, you're being disruptive, you're, you're basically being a thorn in the side, and what God is saying about that is, you don't, you're not believing in me. In There you go. I was going to say, because now in chapter, in, in our Philippians passage, he, he says, I assume it was coming to my mind, but now it's shot right out. Okay, so it's with, without... Um, oh, I don't want to say without faith because that's gonna. There's a little different connotation. Without trust, maybe. How about that? Without trust in God, meaning not trust for salvation, but trust for the circumstance, right? Okay, excellent. So he's saying, have this attitude. He says, don't do anything from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Before that, he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. This demonstration that we've looked up here, I forgot to, I didn't spell that right. Um, th the demonstration of this is actually a contrast to this. So those who are grumblers, and if you are a grumbler, and I can, t and I can tell you this for some people is really a, uh, stronghold in their life. They are, they are by nature grumblers, you know. They just find fault with everything, and they want to complain about everything. And to, to help, and to help, they also don't like change, and so bringing them on board with you to get in on board with a new mission or a new, or a new program or a new way of doing things or whatever. In the household of faith, it's, it's, a, it's an entity that is changing and growing all the time, and it needs to. As the seasons change, we need to grow and change together. And what God is saying, if you're a grumbler and if you're a disputer, then you're a person who's not trusting God. And he's saying of these, it's an act of contempt toward God, which is really an act of rebellion. And he's saying, you are without trust in God. You're not believing God. Okay? And then he said, and he actually calls it in, look in 1427. There's a couple of things that are interesting there. Read 27, somebody. Okay, and in there, did it say that these people are, do not learn from God? I don't know if your translation said it that way or not. One of the translations says these are a people who do not learn. They do not learn from me. In other words, how is it, what is it that God often would say to Israel, the Israelites when they would find themselves in a different in a, or a difficult situation? He would tell them to do what? 
to remember, right? He would say, remember the days of old when I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this. Why? Because what were they supposed to have done about those things that they remember? They're supposed to have learned how God operates or learned to trust God, right? So in this case, here we see in, the, in Numbers, he's saying about them, he calls them, your, yours didn't say evil, it said a different word, but in my translation it says basically these are evil acts. They are acting in an evil manner toward God because they, are not, they have not learned from God. They are not learning what God has already proven of himself. Yes, yes. Yeah, they did. No, exactly. And they had not learned from what God had already demonstrated to them. What did, how had God brought them out of Egypt to begin with? But unbelievable. I mean, parting the Red Sea and destroying the army that was following him, and, and not to mention all the plagues that preceded all that to get them out of there to begin with and the Passover right the day of the the Passover of the of the angel that killed all the firstborns and I mean it is an amazing thing to me when God looks at people who are grumblers and complainers he's saying you did not learn about me now what does that tell you and I the ch the church what is it then that you think is an essential quality? In order for you and I to have the attitude of Christ, what is one of the essentials for us? We need to come to know God. Yeah. Come to know God so that you can trust him and obey him. You can, you can trust him so you can follow him. You can trust him so you can do the things he wants you to do. You are, you are going to believe God and trust in God, and you're going to not look at your circumstance like Paul could have. Paul could have looked at his circumstance where he was imprisoned, and he didn't know whether he was going to live or die, but he's saying, I'm trusting in God. And actually, his, do you remember what his attitude was in chapter 1 he, about the idea of maybe dying? It was a gain to him. He was actually excited about maybe going to be with the Lord. Yes, I'm like, I'm with him. I'm like, I'm ready to be with the Lord. But, but if you don't have that attitude of whether you live or whether you die, either way it's good, then you could be fearful in your circumstance. And the numbers record talks about a people who God did all these mighty things for them and in their presence and for them to have learned from them and they did not learn. And therefore, he refers to their hearts as being evil, that they, have, that they, are, that they are acts of evil. evil. They're not he's not saying they personally are evil, but these are acts of evil, okay? Okay, they have not learned. Um, grumbling, basically in chapter 14, verse 9, it's an act of rebellion against the Lord. It's not just, when you rebel and when you grumble against or within the body of Christ, within your corporate church, as a grumbler, you're not really just grumbling against an individual that you think you're facing, but you're really grumbling against God himself. Because what the principle behind this is, is that God is the one that's guiding all of this. God, God is the one that's in charge of what programs go and what programs don't go. And so if you are grumbling against something which God is going, what does that verse say that, that um, about um, if it's from God, nothing can, can, can stop it? Remember that 
that was one of the um, the Pharisees when they were talking about Jesus and about the movement of Jesus at that time, and they and he says, "Look, just leave him alone because if it's of the Lord, you can't stop it." Gamaliel, okay, there you go. It, it's just an amazing thing. And here he's saying it's an act of spurning God or contempt toward God. It's not believing God. In other words, not, and I don't, I'm going to remove that word in. It means not believing God, meaning without trusting God, right? Okay, in 1 Corinthians uh, 10, what did you learn? That was 1 to 13 that you looked at. Okay, and when and in verse uh, five, what did he say about grumbling? How does God view it? He is not well pleased. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying. It's pretty simple. It's not well pleased. <laughs> okay. So it, it, grumbling does not please God. It also does not please me. Grumbling <laughs> does not please God. Exactly what he's doing, he's taking numbers and he's recanting it. So he's giving his commentary on what he thinks happened back there. And so he's saying in verses 6 and 11 that they are to take heed because why? When we, when we look back at something like a recorded event in numbers where we see these people in the wilderness grumbling, what did God do to those people in the wilderness who grumbled? He killed them. He put them to death. And so in Corinthians 10, when Paul is making reference back to that time, what does he tell them that we're just, why are we supposed to take heed to what we uh, are looking at back there in Numbers? That's exactly right. God recorded these things for you, for your learning right? That these are things that happened as an example for you. Now, they don't cover every scenario under heaven, but what you understand is the principle is if you're a grumbler and you're grumbling against God's people, against God's work, against God's corporate body, if there's grumbling going on in the midst of all of that, what he's saying about you is as a grumbler, you need to take heed and go back and consider what God did to those who grumbled in the wilderness. He took their life for it. He says, I can't have this kind. Why do you think God took it so seriously? What, do you th what is the damage that can happen because of people who are grumblers? It, they bring others down. I'm sorry, Lisa. Okay, it ends up resulting in disunity. Rather than bringing unity together, one of the things he said in here, he said is that he wants us to have the same mind, meaning the mindset that he had, which is basically he's going to take you into saying that it's the mind of Christ. And he's saying that maintaining the same love and being united in spirit. You're not going to be united in spirit if people are grumbling and what they do is they stick a little thorn in the flesh of somebody else and that person now is agitated and what happens then in, in, um, in the body? 
other people start to grumble. If one person starts grumbling, it can cause, if you don't nip it in the butt, if, as, particularly as leaders, this is one of the reasons why leaders, I think, have such a hard job, is they have to run around so often putting out fires before they really come into full flame. They have to get the sparks while they're little. So they have to actually go to their employees in their staff, for instance, to begin. That's the first place you start, right? As you say to your staff members, do not be grumbling. Do not be complaining. Do not be sharing or voicing this outside of this room. We talk about things internally, but then you don't talk about them outside to your friends and your neighbors and your whatever. Because why? We need to have an opportunity to let these programs be successful. And if you grumble, you're going to cause dis uh, discontent. So, the pr and it makes good sense. How about in a family unit? I hate peas, Mom. Then pretty soon the little brother's saying, I don't like peas either. So now everybody's rebelling. Dad's going, you know, I never liked anything green, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> We're not eating green. Green's out. <laughs> All right. So take heed. Your uh, grumbling does not please God. And we also need that uh, to understand that God, God's example Of, about grumblers it is given so that we take heed. So we are to take heed in that. All right, now, yes? Is it also the fact that everybody's thinking of their own one? There you go. Perfect. Very good. That's exactly, and that actually goes right back to the whole point to chapter two is that you're to put others' needs above your own. Where we said that if you're finding fault, you're speaking arrogantly, it says you're following your own lusts, and your own lusts leads you to grumbling and disputing, and that causes dispute and, and division in the body. He wants them to be unified as a body. And I think that th there's n no other chapter than, uh, stronger in this message than in this chapter 2, that what he's doing is he's speaking to a corporate body. He's speaking to a collective group of people saying to them, you are to work together as God's children. This is to be a family and a unit and, a, and, a, and a basically a, um, a thing to... to have a movement basically in the world around you as lights in the world you need to be unified right and you need to show the true relevance of who Christ is if you're going to represent Christ well in the world you have to represent him for who he is is God a grumbler did, did, no did God say oh man I don't want to go down there and save those people I don't want to have to die on a cross Right? And he didn't say that. He said instead, he took on the likeness and the form of man and he willingly went to the cross. You're very smart. <laughs> okay, the rest of you have got to kind of <laughs> come up to the standard here. Okay, so now, do things without, now, this is very interesting. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you prove yourselves to be blameless, innocent children of God above reproach, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ you will have reason to glory. I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Now, what is he referencing there? 
What is he talking about? His running in vain and toiling in vain. That if, he, that if you don't do it, that it's a, it has something that has uh, been in vain. Right, right. What is it that, we, last week we talked about this, so I'm going to review it with you. What is it that is the thrust of Paul's message here? What is it that, in this book, what is Paul wanting them to do in spite of circumstances? Rejoice, right? So he wants them to rejoice, and he says, so in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, we see him say that basically in this chapter, he's wanting them to understand his personal joy in serving them and Christ. He's demonstrating that to them, that he is joyful in it. Even though it could be a really horrible thing, he is not grumbling, he is not dis disputing, he is not, um, uh, he is not showing lack of faith in God or trust in God. Rather, he is keeping his eyes upon the end goal, and he is saying, uh, uh, basically, I'm going to rejoice regardless, right? So he wants to share with them his personal joy, so that they are exhorted by that. Back in chapter 1, we saw he actually states it. He has a concern for their progress and joy in the faith. That's why he's writing to them. He wants to see them progress in their faith, and he wants them to have joy in it. You don't just progress in the faith and grumble through it. You don't just progress in the faith, in, in the faith and uh, feel like it's a heavy burden. But he wants them to be joyful in it. As we walk with Christ, to be joyful as we walk with Christ. That's his goal. So that regardless of circumstances, they will live to Christ rejoicing. What does it say in 4.4? Flip over to 4.4. I love that one because that's like his, again, I say rejoice. Exactly. So he really makes it a declarative. He, de he declares he wants them to rejoice always. And then he says, and again, I just want you to hear it more clearly. Again, I say rejoice. That is the heart of his message. You are going to live in this life. You're going to have hardships. There's going to be trials and persecutions. But I don't want you to get your eyes off of Jesus. And I don't want you to, be, having eyes on yourself, become grumblers and disputers. Okay? Because if you're grumbling and disputing about everything that's going on in your life and in your church, then it's because what have you done? You've forgotten who's in charge, haven't you? So now that takes us to the next, the next part of this. Um, I want to look at his work. We looked in Philippians 2, uh, verses 12 and 13. This is really cool. He talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says the word for, and we know that for means that it, there's a reason that it's there for, right? There's a term of conclusion. For, is he says, it is God who is at work in you, number one, to will. Number two, to work. Now, if, you, if you're into doing the simple, the simple lists in your text like you do for your, in your, when you did your uh, primary observations, this would be a place where you'd have a one and a number two in your sentence, right? So number one, he's going to do this. He's going to will. And number two, he's going to work. Why? For his good pleasure. Now, you did word studies this week. 
And we're going to cover two of them. The one to will. What does that mean? And the also to work. So let's start with to will. That's in 213. Verse 213. It's number 23. Whoops. Write that again. 2309. And what was the definition of to, to will? To desire. Okay, say it again, to, to desire to have intent. Inclination, I like that word. Inclination. I love this. Okay. Um, one of them even said to like to do a thing. <laughs> to will it is to even to make you like to do a thing. So in this, is if it's God who's at work in you to will. So now translate that into English for me. With this definition. Yeah, it's God that puts, this is so cool. Have you ever wondered why you seem to have an interest to do certain things and not other things? Some people love to go and serve people in a soup kitchen. Some people love to sing in the choir. Some people love to go to prison ministries. Some people love to teach, you know, and you just have this desire and you get such joy in doing it, right? You just love it. You have this this inclination toward it. You, you, you just seem to be determined in it. You have a resolve to want. You desire to do these things, right? Very interesting. So it's God who wills it in you. And then the next one is to work. Now, what does it mean to work? That's also in 213, and it's number 1754. What does it mean to work? Okay, to accomplish it, I love this. To accomplish. Wow, so it's energize. I'll just put energizing, like the Everett battery, right? Yeah, very good. I was pretty close, and wasn't I? <laughs> Any other thoughts on that that you want to share? To be operative. To be operative. Okay, to be at work. I even have one that says to put forth power and to aid one or to affect. So I'm going to put those up here also. Uh, to put forth power, to aid, or to affect. Wow. Okay, so if it's God that does it, so it's God who accomplishes, it's God who's energizing, it's God who puts into operation, it's God who puts forth the power, it's God who gives aid, it's God who, who gives the effect so when he, God is at work in you, it is God who is at work in you to 
do what? What is this telling you about the things that you are interested in doing? Oh, I am interested in being a teacher, so I am just a good teacher because I am. Yeah, he's the one that equips you. So in, in essence, what he's saying is that he is the one that designed the whole thing. He put it in your heart to do it, and then he gave you the ability to do so. Now, how does that affect your attitude about anything that you're engaged in, anything that you're, you're committed to? That's right, no fighting. That's exactly right. Because, but what, why is, what is he saying about the work then? Who is the one who produces the work? It's God established. It's God motivated. It's God energized. It's God produced. It's God's result. So if you, if you are energized, if you say you love to share the gospel, so you, I know, I think about Peggy Finnegan. She's one of them that's, that loves this, and she'll go to McDonald's or one of these places and sit around and just wait for people to show up so she can talk to them about Jesus, right? And I think God is the one that has given her this desire, right? The, the I want to, the, the inclination towards it, the resolve to want to be there and do that. She gets up, she takes her book, she takes everything she thinks she needs, and she goes, and she sits, she buys a cup of coffee and just sits there and waits for the, I would call them a victim, but they're a blessed <laughs> victim. <laughs> the blessed person who will come into her path. And then what happens? Who's at work in her? Is God that's at work. Don't you tell on me. She's my sweetheart. I love my Peggy. She and I are even friends on. There you go. Now that's to the next part. And why is God doing this? It's for his good pleasure. In other words, it's he that is accomplishing basically what it was that he wanted to do. Not what you think you, you think you wanted to do it. But the reality is it's God that wanted it done. God put me where I am doing what I'm doing, even though I love it with all my heart. And anybody that knows me knows I'm a, I'm a studyaholic. I can't help myself. And I lo- but who gave that love to me? Who gave me that desire to want to do it? God did. And if I'm at, in the least bit successful at it all, who, who's doing it? The Lord. So you give God the glory because it's for his good pleasure to go. Now, I think this is cool. We're going to spend the next couple of minutes, I want to show you a demonstration of this very thing in Scripture because we did this yesterday at church. For those of you who were in church with me yesterday, we did um, Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2. Remember? How many of you saw this in Nehemiah yesterday? Were you all going, oh my gosh, there it is. Did you guys see it or was I the only one? Let's see if I can find Nehemiah. Nehemiah, Esther, Job. Uh, I should have put a... Okay, Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2. I want to take us back in here because this is a perfect, perfect, perfect demonstration of exactly what he's teaching us here in chapter 
2 verse 13 that it is God who is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now listen to Nehemiah. I'm, I'm, my pastor would be so proud of me that I was really paying attention. Okay, so Nehemiah is uh, um, in exile and he's wanting to return back to Israel to rebuild uh Jerusalem. He says, now it came about when I heard these words, I, oh, wait a second, I have to back up. The words of Nehemiah, it happened that in the months of Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanai, one of the brothers, and some of the men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Now I want to stop right there for one second. What has Nehemiah reverted back to as the thing which both stirred his heart but also motivated him even to approach God his remembering of the covenant do you remember in chapter one in the prayer that Paul gives to the Philippians what does he tell them that's going to motivate their love to abound more and more true knowledge and discernment because from true knowledge comes discernment Nehemiah is reverting back to true knowledge he has a true knowledge of who his God is and the promises that that God has given, right? And so he's right here demonstrating to us exactly what Paul prayed for them in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, where, where he says, I want your love to abound more and more through, through true knowledge and through discernment. The discernment comes out of the knowledge. And so this is what Nehemiah is doing. He's going back and remembering. He's mourning because of his remembrance of what God's promises are. And he's hearing now that Jerusalem is basically in despair. So he goes on. He says, Let thine eye ear now be attentive and thine ears open to thy prayer of thy servant. And I think back when you and I did our, our study of Solomon with the kings and prophets study that we just came out of. And when they dedicated the temple, what did Solomon say was in his prayer? Do you remember? That's right, that if when they had sinned and if they were in another land, if they would turn their heart to him and, and turn their face toward him, and if they would pray and seek him, that he would hear them. So if you go on through this whole thing, you see this is the prayer that he's praying. He's asking God to remember the covenant, and he's confessing sin as he goes through this. Then he says in um, verse 11, O Lord, I beseech thee. May thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and the prayer of thy servants who delight to revere thy name and make thy servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Who is going to give him success in what he is going to, about to do? God. He's actually 
recognizing that he's making a verbal confession let god be the let god you be the one that gives me success in this now i was the cupbearer of the king and then he goes on in chapter two and it came about in the month of nisan in the 20th year of king Artaxerxes, that wine was before him and i took up the wine and i gave it to the king he goes on he talks about his countenance before the king and the king pays attention to this and he asks asked him, well, what's going on with you? And then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. This is very interesting. He didn't stop, bow his knee, and get on his knees before him. Excuse me for a minute while I pray. It was an instantaneous prayer. His heart, his mind was lifted to the Lord. He, and he says, I prayed, but you know it was an instantaneous thing. And then he said, and I said to the king, if it pleased the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tomb, that I may rebuild it. Who do you think put that in his heart? That God did. God put it in his heart. And not only that, but remember, this is all at the appropriate time. Remember, God had determined 70 years for them for their captivity. Right? And so this is at the time when they're ready. The, the 70 years will have been accomplished. It is now time for them to begin to return. And then the king said to me, to the queen, uh, how long will your journey be? When will you return? And, and so it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. Now, let me drop here to um, verse 12. And then he's talking about him going on this journey. And I arose in the night and, and a few men with me. And I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal upon which I was riding. So I went out on the way of the valley of the gate in the direction of the dragon's well. So he talks about then going out and surveying things. And he's taken with him a few men. He has not really told them what God has placed on his heart, but he says it in verse 12. I underlined it and highlighted it. God was putting it into my mind to do for Jerusalem. Do you see that? This is exactly what he it says. It's for, it's, it is God who is at work in you to will. God put it in his heart, gave him that desire, put it in his mind. And then he said, and, but and he's already prayed that God will do the work to accomplish it. But this is really cool. Then he goes, you go on down to verse 18 to 20. And he says, and I told them now, the hand of my God has been favorable to me. And also about the king's words, which he had spoken to me when he had said, let us ri rise and rebuild. So they put their hands to the good work. Isn't that amazing? This is like almost verbatim. This verse in demonstration in chapters 1 and 2 of Nehemiah. I, I just almost flipped when I heard him preaching this. Yep. Yes. Yes. Well, there's all this timing that's being worked out, but but it's just it absolutely was so exciting to me when my pastor was up there preaching on something totally different. But I saw because I had just studied this the night before about how it was for, uh, God who's at work in you to will it and to work it for His good pleasure, and then and also when you. See Precede it with chapter 1 where he said, 
uh, through true knowledge and discernment, then you will know basically what to do for me, right? How you will live out for me. And then going into Nehemiah, and there's Nehemiah. First thing he does is reverse back to the covenant. He recalls the true knowledge of God and what God had promised. And then he relied on God for that. He prayed that God would be the one through his hand that he would do it. He makes an acknowledging statement very clearly in verse 12 of chapter 2. My God was putting it into my mind to do for Jerusalem. That's cool. I loved it. I loved it. All right. Well, so this, yes. I know I, the whole storyline in in this Philippians book is so practical and so easy to make application I think for us and yet it's also really profound truths yes I, could, I couldn't understand her Mm -hmm. All right, so any other points? Any other thoughts? Yes, Vanessa. Um, 